Let me begin by telling you about how bad bugs are. Since the dawn of man, we have waged war with bacteria. And it's a war we have fared very badly at. They've devastated us. Bacteria over the millennia have killed not thousands, not millions, but billions of us. And until Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, the ledger was looking pretty awful. And you've all heard about those awful, awful bacterial illnesses like flesh-eating disease, necrotizing fasciitis, where you get these awful staphylococci in the layers between your muscles that sort of melt and dissolve your muscles and tissues and you lose limbs. Terrible. And some of you have heard about meningococcal disease, meningococcal septicemia. And from the beginning of the infection, within hours, patients can be an extremist and potentially dying. And of course, it leads to clotting and coagulation, the loss of limbs. And as a pediatrician, I graphically remember 15 years or so ago, managing a, a young child, a toddler, who lost all four limbs to meningococcal disease. So that's why we hate bacteria. They're bad, they're evil, we don't like them. But of course, I'm talking about pathogenic bacteria, disease-causing bacteria. And over the course of the evening, I hope to convince you that there are good bacteria, and in fact, our lives and well-beings depend on these bacteria. Michael Spector is a well-renowned journalist, writes for the Washington Post, New York Times, New Yorker. And in writing a series of articles, he finished with a very poignant comment. And he said at the end of the sequence of articles, the microbiome, our gut microbiome, affects so many aspects of our lives that scientists have begun to wonder what it is to be human. They affect so many parts of our health and well-being. Let me give you a few little tips before we dive into the science, the, the, grit, the nitty-gritty science. Hands up those of you who weigh yourselves at least once a week. Come on, how many armless people are there in the audience? Of course you do. Most of you will weigh yourselves most days, I think. The good news is, next time before you jump on the scales, lean down and dial back minus 2.5, 2 to 3 kilos, because that's how heavy your gut bugs are in your gut, and they're slightly heavier than your brain. And I call them gut bugs. Now, the standard term is gut microbiome, but gut bugs are easy to say. The gut bug story begins about 15 years ago with an American, Fred Backhead and co. And they did this really cool experiment with these mice. And what made these mice interesting is these are mice called germ-free mice. In other words, these mice have no bacteria in them or on them. They're germ-free. And they're kept in these special cages that look like something from a, an Apollo uh, moonship. And they're reared in these cages. And so what Fred's group did one day is... If we put the gut bugs, because they had no bugs in their gut, if we put the gut bugs of a normal mouse inside these germ-free mice, what would happen to them? And what happened to them transformed our thinking about gut bugs and our gut microbiome and opened this whole field of science, which is becoming probably one of the most exciting areas in science right now. What they discovered was that these germ-free mice, who are completely healthy and happy, became fatter, quite a lot fatter. And they, and they deposited more fat in places that equate to our tummy, our visceral fat, which is bad fat. So you're thinking, well, somehow 
those gut bugs that they put in there made them eat more. No, they actually ate less. They ate less. And worse still, their blood glucose levels were higher and their insulin levels were higher, which is all risk factors for diabetes. So what they found is these gut bugs they put inside them had the potential to radically alter their health and well-being. Now, what Fred and co. did, as did a number of other research groups, is that they manipulated these um, mice experiments. So they would go from, they put the gut bugs from a fat mouse inside the germ-free mouse, bingo, germ-free mouse got fat. Get a skinny mouse, put the gut bugs inside the germ-free mice, the germ-free mouse gets thin. Now you're probably thinking, how do they get the bugs in the mice? And what makes mice easy to study is there are two things they do that are different to us. The first thing they do is they eat each other's poos. So when you're doing human experiments, that gets a bit more tricky to manage. The other thing is that we have very acidic stomachs, as you know. If you have a vomit, you have that awful acidic taste in your mouth. And it's because the pH of our stomachs is very low. And if we, if we swallow bacteria, a lot of them are just going to get killed by, by that acidity. But mice don't have very acidic stomachs. So if you think about doing the mouse experiment with a germ-free mouse and a normal mouse, you put them in this cage together, bingo, one treats the other one. So that's mice. Now, mice are not men, so let's just move up a level. And now we're moving from humans to mice. So the humans are the donors, back to our friend the germ-free mouse. And in this quite interesting study, they took a group of twins, where one twin was obese and the other twin was slim. They weren't identical twins, obviously. And they took their gut bugs from the fat twin and the thin twin and put them in the germ-free mice. And you can predict what would happen, right? Just as they did with the mice. So from the obese twin into the, into the mouse, mouse gets obese. From the slim twin into the mouse, the mouse stays slim. Okay, that's simple, that's predictable. Now, if you put those two mice together, which shape, which phenotype wins? The fat mouse or the thin mouse when they eat each other's poos? Would you pick? The thin mouse wins. The thin mouse wins. So the fat mouse becomes thinner and the thin mouse doesn't become significantly fatter. And that's kind of interesting as we move through the evening and I start talking about experiments in humans and experiments that we're doing in humans. Now, so let, take, let me take you to the next level of this experiment. So we started off with these twins, one fat, one thin, put the bugs in the mice, the mouse gets fat or thin, then you mix the mice up, the thin mouse wins. What if you then feed those mice crap diets? What happens? And the answer is the crap diet wins. In other words, fat mouse that cohabited with a thin mouse, gobbled his poos up, got thinner, give him a bad diet, boom, gets fat. That becomes important later on when I talk about our gut bug study. So the important initial thing is the thin mouse wins over the fat mouse and bad diet wins over everything. Now, there are a few other gems to share with you about um, our gut bugs before I start getting into 
human studies and what we know about humans. The first is that we think diversity is really, really important. And if you think about a simple analogy, that if you've got a, a pine forest, a simple pine forest, a single species, that's going to be less resilient to all sorts of environmental um, insults than, say, a west coast of the South Island subtropical rainforest. Clearly, diversity is important for resilience and to have the most healthy microbiome. The Hadza people uh, in Tanzania are one of the few remaining true hunter-gatherer people, and they have the most diverse microbiome on the planet. We've all got a very narrow range of bugs because for generations, we and our parents have fed them fairly badly. But between us, there's quite a lot of variation. So we have a lot of variation between us, but our range is narrow. And that's something one day we'll need to redress, but it's not a quick fix. The second thing is there are important events in our lives that affect our gut microbiome. Diet is clearly a big one. So about half of our gut microbiome, a bit over half, is influenced by our diet, dictated by our diet. And so as our diet goes up and down, these gut, a, a portion of our gut bugs will change and go up and down. Other lifestyle events that occur to us, like antibiotics. Antibiotics nuke your gut bugs and it takes them weeks to recover. Every time you have antibiotics, it absolutely bashes them around. Half of you have had a glass of alcohol tonight. You've knocked them around, but they might be better in the next few days. Stress also influences our gut microbiome. Probiotics will potentially have a minor effect on our gut microbiome. The other important factor is what I call a maintenance population. So when babies are born, they have virtually no bugs in their gut. We used to think their gut was sterile, but it's actually not completely sterile. So they've got some bugs. And over the first two years of life, through that phase of breastfeeding, those infants and young children develop a more adult gut microbiome like us. So by about two years of age, a two-year-old's microbiome is like ours. But until that time, it's rapidly changing. Now... I've said to you that the mice get fatter when exposed to the wrong gut microbiome, which is an unhealthy microbiome. How do they get fatter? When we eat food, there's a whole bunch of indigestible stuff that ends out in the toilet bowl and you flush it away. Now, just another little gem for you. Half of what you flush away is waste, and half are bacteria, and most of them are still alive. They're not all dead, and they came from your gut. So make sure you flush twice, make sure they're all gone. Um, but what the less well-behaved bacteria can do is they can take that waste, that indigestible waste, break it down, and turn it into calories that you then absorb. There is no doubt that those bugs actually influence your appetite and we think they actually influence our behaviour. And I'll come back to that later. Now, remember I said to you there's a sort of maintenance population that get developed early, and they kind of stay with us over time. And there was a study done a few years ago, and what they found was that over about a five-year period, about a third of your microbiome kind of remains constant. And, and I believe that was the ones that you were, that developed early. They're your sort of founder cornerstone 
pillar group, if you like. Now, what, the, what happens to that cornerstone group over decades as you age? And we did a really cool um, double-blind, randomised study of N equals 1. <laughs> and who was the N equals 1? The N equals 1 was Billy Apple. Have you all heard of Billy Apple, the artist? So, Billy in 1970 had an exhibition in New York called, wait for it, Excretory Wipings. Now, you don't get a prize for guessing what the exhibition was about. There were lines of tissue paper that had brown stuff all over them. And it was a very successful exhibition, supposedly. Um, Billy came to us a couple of years ago and said, and he'd been reading some of our work and about the microbiome, and he said, could you analyse these samples of mine from 47 years ago? And we said, yeah, we can do that. So we took those samples, and what we could do was we actually worked, we took all the genes apart of all of the bacteria. So although the bacteria were all dead, we could still tell who they were and what they were. And we got a fresh sample from Billy now, 46 years later, to see how his microbiome had changed, because he certainly had changed. And the answer is about half of his microbiome remained constant over that time. Now, that study isn't easily possible to do anywhere else, because you don't get these samples 46 years apart. Um, we've talked about mice. I've talked about man to mice. I've told you about Billy. Now, what about humans? You know, this is where the rubber hits the road. What goes on with humans? And there has been a kind of tidal wave of work looking at what the microbiome is doing in a whole bunch of different conditions. So if we take obese children or adults, their microbiome is different. We call it dysbiotic. It means it's different and there's less diversity and there is a higher number of less desirable bacteria, like Firmicutes, to drop a name on you. So those who are obese have it. Those with type 2 diabetes have it. Those who have inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, awful diseases, they have a dysbiotic um, microbiome. As do children with asthma and eczema. But add to the list those with Alzheimer's disease, Parkinsonism, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, and children with autism. All of them have a dysbiotic gut microbiome. Now, that's an association. You've got a condition and a change in the gut microbiome. And it's really tempting to say that changed gut microbiome in some way led to or influenced or caused the development of obesity, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, autism, eczema, various other allergic disorders. But we all know associations don't necessarily prove cause and effect. If it rains tonight, we cannot assume that the next time you come to the birdcage, it rains because the birdcage makes it rain. We can't assume that. So we're left with these association studies the only way we know for sure what role our gut microbiome truly plays is by doing treatment studies in which you take a healthy microbiome and put it inside somebody who has some 
major illness or disorder. Now, most of the work done in that regard is in this awful condition called C. difficile infection. So this is a horrible form of diarrhea, and it's potentially life-threatening. It has about a 20% mortality rate, one in five people who get it, and it's recurrent, die from it. Usually what happens is that these people are given a course of antibiotics, and about a third of them, it doesn't work, and they just keep getting it, and it, it's really, really, really bad. It's disabling, it's life-threatening. So what they did was to say, what if we used, they called it fecal microbiome transplantation. So you may have heard this term, FMT. I hate that term. I hate that term. I use gut microbiome transfer. And the reason I do that is when you recruit patients for a study and you talk about doing fecal transplants, they are out the door and down the road. But if you talk about gut microbiome transfer, which is actually what we're doing, transferring gut microbiome, they don't run quite as fast and as far. So uh, coming back to this awful diarrhea condition. So what, they, what was done was several groups of researchers now have said, okay, why don't we take the microbiome from somebody who doesn't have the condition and give it to them? Now, how are they going to give it to them? We're not mice. So what they would do is they would get a healthy donor, usually a family member. They would get, anybody got chips left? Finish your chips now. <laughs> they would get this fresh stool, put it in a blender, put a tube from the bottom up into the bowel, and then tip it in. Now, as horrendous and primitive as that sounds, about 90% of the time, it will cure those people. And when you have a life-threatening, debilitating condition, I'm sure you'd put up with that. The other option is to go from the top down and put the tube all the way down. Same effect, in with a smoothie. So, you know, it's the smoothie up or the smoothie down. And it, it really worked. So for that condition, there is no doubt that that is transformative. But that's a pretty severe condition where the microbiome's been totally screwed up. Okay, well, what other conditions have there been treatment studies? So they're just beginning to occur, and most of them are not very big. In ulcerative colitis, which is a form of inflammatory bowel disease, it causes awful diarrhea, weight loss, real ill health. What they find is that there, versus standard treatment, there's a four times better recovery rate when you use the tube up, tube down, smoothie. Um, the other option that has been used less effectively is to create these enemas, these gut microbiome enemas, and just pop them up five days a week for eight weeks, pop them up. Now, so it works for ulcerative colitis. Irritable bowel syndrome is something a lot of people suffer from. In fact, if I was to sweep around this audience, maybe a quarter of you would have some degree of mild irritable bowel syndrome, where your bowel every so often just kind of does its own thing and misbehaves and you get a bit of tummy pain. But some people get it quite severely. And they've shown, well, first of all, I forgot to tell you, I'll tell you about the mouse experiment before we come to the clinical experiment. So in the mouse experiment, we're going back to the, to the mice, there's a mouse model of irritable bowel syndrome, and these mice get this awful diarrhea intermittently, and they're incredibly anxious. And if you take their gut bugs and put them back in our good old friend, the germ-free mouse, who, 
led a pretty happy life until people started sticking bad things in it, um, that mouse became incredibly anxious and developed irritable bowel syndrome. So reversing that, if you take the microbiome from a healthy donor in those with irritable bowel syndrome, there is a significant improvement in their recovery. Type 2 diabetes, very common problem. There's a tiny little pilot study, it's early data, that shows if you do the same thing, pop the tube up, smoothie down, in those with type 2 diabetes, their blood glucoses are as good or better than with any other conventional diabetes treatment. So there's potential promise there uh, in terms of treatment. Now, about two years ago, as we saw all of this happening, my science partner in crime, Justin O'Sullivan, I walked into, we, we have offices beside each other, and I walked in, into his office and I said, Justin, we've got to stop doing these association studies and my studies. We need to do a human study and we need to have a go at perhaps one of the most complex, difficult disorders of all, and that's obesity. And that was the beginning of the gut bug study. Now, what was unusual about that study is that before the study had begun, it was a cover story on the listener. We were twice on the project, and then, of course, there was the documentary series with a slightly unusual name, The Good Shit, that you may or may not have seen, which was very successful in terms of ratings. And the documentary series was made as we were doing the research. Usually what happens, you do the research, get to the end, and then tell the story. Now... We like to think it's because it was such a snazzy, cool, really interesting novel project, but I think it reflects our, our interest in our gut microbiome, our total fascination with it. So we embarked on the study, and our goal was to treat morbidly obese teenagers. And in my clinic, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, it's not uncommon to see teenagers 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age who are between 120 and 200 kilos, so we're talking about kids who have got a major problem with obesity, often got hypertension, some of them even have type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, and on and on. So what we developed is we developed a technique where we collect the donor stools, take the bacteria out, wash them up, put them inside one capsule, put them inside a second capsule, better than handmade chocolates, and then freeze them. And when they're frozen, so they can, we can either give them fresh, or if they're frozen and we freeze them at minus 80, deep freeze them, deep, deep freeze them, that they can be stored for months and months and months deep frozen and then pull them out. So what we found is that we get really good recovery rate if we put these bacteria, clean them up into capsules within an hour, we can have them frozen, deeply frozen in 60 minutes. We move pretty quick. So what we do is that we've got each of our recipients will receive the gut bugs from four donors because we're after diversity. So what made our study different? We chose donors who were, we called super donors, because they needed to be slim, they needed to have low body fat, they needed to exercise regularly, they needed to have a very healthy diet, they needed to be on no medication, and that removed most people who thought that they would be good donors. So we chose, we think, the best of the best. Now, each recipient receives the bacteria from four donors, and they don't know what they're getting. They get capsules. And this is the capsule. So there's another capsule inside with the bacteria inside it. 
So they get 14 one day and 14 the next day because eating 28 at one time is quite a large meal. The important thing when you do that, though, is you don't chew them. <laughs> Chewing them is a real problem. So what do we know from our study? So we've accrued all the subjects. What I can't give you is the punchline because we're analysing the data literally now. But what I can tell you are several things. The first is that when you treat the obese teens, we need to know that their microbiomes have changed because if they haven't changed, then what's the point in following them up if it hasn't worked? Because the other conditions in which they've treated um, patients with a healthy microbiome, they've had really disordered microbiomes, whereas obese people, it's a bit more subtle than that. And what we found is that in a pilot study is that those who had the placebo, their microbiomes just remained the same. Those who were treated, their microbiomes totally changed. And of the four donors, they were exposed to four donors, there was one dominant donor, a true super donor, and, the, 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 and they were girls. The girls who were treated all had microbiomes that looked just like that super donor. And that was at six weeks, at three months, and then at six months. Now, we have the pilot data, which is only a handful of girls. None of them lost a huge amount of weight. But anecdotally, two of those five girls then put themselves on diets. And they'd previously dieted and um, hadn't had any success at all. And they lost between 12 and 14 kilos within eight weeks, those two girls. So remember I told you about the importance of the microbiome, the skinny microbiome, and the diet from the mice, and it might well be that that is the most important combo. What we looked at in our study, which we're analysing the data on, was just transferring the microbiome and not messing with their diets. We wanted to change one variable at a time. Hopefully in the next few months you'll get to hear the punchline from that story. So that's it from me, a gallop through of mine and your microbiome. <laughs>